Hi, I'm Clara Hendrickson, and welcome to The Wonk Memos. This is a podcast where I talk about the big ideas influencing today's political and policymaking climate. You might be wondering why I started this podcast. Well, I was a political science major during undergrad, and I've always believed that ideas and theories and the more gooey political stuff matters for how we think about the problems we're facing, how we solve those problems, and ultimately how we live and experience our lives. I'm working in D.C. right now where I'm finding, contrary to popular belief, is not just a playground for corrupt and disinterested politicians who are out of touch with ordinary Americans, but also a place where I get to live and breathe the cool ideas coming out of the city from some of the most thoughtful people around. It feels like the more time I spend here, the more questions I'm asking. I love talking to people who've been studying this stuff for years, and in this podcast, I want to share my questions and their knowledge with you. So let's get started. Today, I'll be tackling our campaign finance system. There aren't a lot of functioning democracies around the world that work this way, where you can basically uh, have millionaires and billionaires bankrolling whoever they want, however they want, in some cases undisclosed. Uh, And what it means is ordinary Americans are shut out of the process. That feeling of being shut out has motivated a lot of widespread anger and frustration with how our campaign finance system works. And this frustration, felt among ordinary Americans, is shared across Democratic and Republican lines, with 84% of Americans believing money has too much influence in our campaigns. Let's start with what most of us think about when we talk about today's campaign finance structure. Citizens United. When the Supreme Court decided Citizens United, it... it struck down uh, limits on corporate and union independent spending, which gave us the sort of super PAC era we live in on the grounds that, well, that money um, has to be spent completely independently of candidates. It can't have any connection to candidates' campaigns. Therefore, what's the corruption risk? If someone's not talking to a candidate, not dealing with the candidate, their spending may in fact hurt the candidate. So why should we worry about it? It turns out that that assumption was completely 100% dead wrong. That was Dan Weiner. He's senior counsel for the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. He's talking about how the numerous cases we've seen where outside money spent wasn't independent but was instead intensely and intimately coordinated with candidates' campaigns, well, how these cases totally undermine the rationale used by the Supreme Court and Citizens United. This type of coordination is rampant and, of course, is very troubling. Citizens United has also given way to an unprecedented amount of money being poured into our elections from an increasingly small pool of donors. Just 10 mega donor individuals and couples contributed nearly 20% of the $1.1 billion raised by super PACs in this election by the end of August. This total exceeds the money collected by super PACs in the entire 2012 election cycle. It's these types of statistics that make many voters feel voiceless. And the funny thing is, we don't seem to be the only ones frustrated by the status quo. Some of this election season's top donors call Citizens United a, quote, terrible decision and say that, quote, money is corrupting our politics, a sentiment that Bernie Sanders captured in his speeches throughout the election. We have got to get rid of super PACs. We have got to get rid of Citizens United. And what we have got to do is create a political revolution which revitalizes American democracy, which brings millions of young people and working people into the political process to say loudly and clearly that the government of the United States of America 
belongs to all of us and not just a handful of wealthy campaign contributors. I think that the slogan, get money out of politics, is a little misleading because politics costs money. And, you know, people like to sort of bandy about that our election costed, you know, seven billion, eight billion dollars. The reality is, is in a democracy of 300 million people, which which conducts sort of mass politics, seven, eight billion dollars is not that much to spend to to choose who we is going to run an $18 trillion economy. Uh, A quote I like that um, Commissioner Ellen Weintraub at the FEC uses, I mean, we spend more money on Halloween candy and decorations than we do on our elections. So I think that to the extent that it is this sort of overly simplistic, we need to get money out of politics, I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think the question is, where does the money come from and how is the money spent? There's no doubt that campaign finance reform is a big issue we need to solve. But the more I looked into it, the less clear I was on what the actual problem was. Was it the influence of money in politics, transparency, rich people with wacky ideological agendas, polarization and gridlock, corruption? People are angry and they should be. There's a growing body of evidence that shows that when it comes to policy outcomes, the rich always get what they want. And when low- and middle-income Americans' preferences diverge from the rich, they rarely get the policy changes they're fighting for. In an era of severe income inequality, the campaign finance system only contributes to a sense that the views and priorities of the average voter don't matter. But I'm starting to learn that the progressive stance that I've held might not be capturing the whole story. I spoke with Ray LaRaja, a political science professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, talking about a book he co-authored, Campaign finance and political polarization when purists prevail. So, the main, it, it, we we take on some of the conventional wisdom about uh, the role of money in politics, and one of our concerns was that um, there was too much emphasis on corruption, and people weren't looking at other problems of the campaign finance system. And our theory was almost like a theory of of the flow of water, hydraulic flow of water. If you clamp down on money in one area, it's going to pop up somewhere else. And that makes a big difference on who has power in the political system. And so we did a study of the 50 states, states that clamped down heavily on parties versus those that didn't. And we found that the parties traditionally give to candidates who are, you know, who are ideological, but more towards the middle um, in both parties. And... Uh, interest groups gave to more extreme candidates and individuals gave to extreme candidates. Mm-hmm. And we found that in those states where you really clamped down on money, especially on political parties, you had more polarized legislatures, more polarized politicians. And so our argument is clamping down on money is a trade-off. You might be thinking you're getting rid of corruption, but you're also unintentionally making the political system more polarized. You're helping what we call the purists. Uh, who really want the parties to be very rigidly ideological and not compromise. And that creates problems for governance. Both Dan and Ray make the case for strengthening political parties, but they have a different sense of what that should look like. Regardless, I was intrigued by the idea that political parties could offer one avenue for fixing some of the problems we see with our campaign finance system today. Here's my conversation with Dan. What what can political parties do? What's sort of your main argument here in the, the paper that you wrote? Well, our argument is that political parties have long played a sort of role in our politics as engines for democratic participation. And that 
to be able to play that role most effectively, um, they need certain types of, of fundraising rules. And and at the moment, the problem is is that a lot of money um, is sort of flowing away from the political parties towards super PACs and other types of groups, many of which are party aligned actually, but they are not the same as the traditional party organizations. So one proposal we have is to kind of rejigger those rules somewhat to really build up the traditional parties again and and help them provide sort of avenues for ordinary people to enter the political process. What's so fascinating to me, it's not only a debate over the effectiveness of political parties today, but there seems to be a split over what the sources of polarization and gridlock are. So can you talk about how using parties as an avenue for campaign finance reform, you're also able to address polarization and gridlock that we're seeing today? Well, that's interesting because a lot of the arguments you hear for strengthening the parties really do focus on this polarization and gridlock question. And I'm actually skeptical that simply sort of funneling more money to the parties is going to be a a cure for that. The party elites, to some extent, are not just uh, being taken along with polarization, they're also drivers of it. What I do think is that the more people you involve in the political process, the more likely you are to see a reduction in polarization. Because right now, we have a situation where the superpartisans, the hyperpartisans, who frankly will be involved regardless of what the campaign finance rules are, um, really have a dominance in the space. And other people, moderates, uh, just people who generally are not as keyed into politics are really absent. And if we can get those people engaged in the process and we can broaden and diversify the, the types of people who are involved in politics, I do think you'll see less polarization because most Americans are not polarized. They're moderate. Um, that requires a more careful strategy than just lifting campaign finance rules and funneling money to the parties. Because I have actually seen very little evidence that just letting the parties raise you know, gigantic contributions will do anything for polarization. In fact, um, after uh, the 200, 2014 Cromnibus bill, which, which lifted a lot of party fundraising limits, they already can raise a lot of money and we're more polarized than we've ever been. Most of the more uh, sweeping reforms we propose in that paper are dependent on shoring up loopholes in the rest of the campaign finance system. I am not in favor of simply deregulating the parties while the rest of our sort of campaign finance legal structure, it looks like Swiss cheese and is riddled with loopholes. Where do you see a right-left split when it comes to campaign finance? It used to be that that campaign finance disclosure was a pretty nonpartisan issue. Uh, Presidents Reagan uh, and both Presidents Bush were were strong advocates of transparency, and now it's been politicized. Um, I would note, though, that that ordinary Republicans actually really disagree with their elected leaders on this. I mean, campaign finance reform is broadly supported across the political spectrum by Tea Partiers, by moderates, everyone under the sun. But there has been a sentiment that kind of has grown inside the beltway, more amongst Republican elites than Democratic elites, although some amongst Democratic elites too, that really is hostile to efforts to to control and regulate money in politics. Um, so that is, I guess, 
to some degree, a left-right split to the extent that it's more Republican elites. Um, but it really is not borne out in the rest of the country. What are some of the other ways um, outside of corruption that could offer an alternative campaign finance jurisprudence? I think you're working on a paper now on electoral integrity. Sure. Well, electoral integrity is actually a, a, an old concept in the jurisprudence. It's been around for a while, and it can mean a lot of different things. But I think that uh, any theory of electoral integrity has to encompass probably not just sort of corruption, but also a sense that you have widespread and meaningful participation, um, that uh, elections are competitive in, in the sense that everyone who has actual viability or potential viability does have a reasonable chance to compete, and of course that they're transparent. And campaign finance rules um, could conceivably be used to guarantee all of these things. They could be, or not guarantee, but they could be used to further all of these goals. Small donor public financing can boost participation. Um, it can also reduce barriers to entry for both candidates and, uh, uh, you know, voter and small contributors. Um, to work, though, you need reasonable limits. Like if, if the government is going to build up small donors, it, it's much harder if people can go give a million dollars to a super PAC. So there are many other justifications for campaign finance rules. That doesn't mean that I advocate uh a sort of maximalist regulatory regime. I think that there are also strong arguments that overly burdensome campaign finance rules do not further electoral integrity. Um, and the courts have a legitimate role in sort of trying to figure that out. But the kind of broad brush that they've done um, is uh, has gone too far. Particularly also, I would say, the complete hostility to any equality rationale whatsoever. I would be the first to agree that absolute equality in the political marketplace is impossible and, and not going to happen. But the idea that the government cannot even think about political equality, even in the most mild level to playing field terms, is kind of outrageous and, and really goes against, I think, what we all intuitively think is the foundation of our political system. So all of those values should play some role, I think, in making all election rules, not just rules governing money and politics, but also voting, redistricting, all of that. It, it's sort of weirdly artificial to just excise all of this except the corruption concern. I liked thinking about how altering our campaign finance system could help reinvigorate political parties as engines for democratic participation. Ray had a different take. He argues that deregulating political parties could actually help solve some of the problems we're seeing with polarization and gridlock. I'll let you take a listen. And so in the book, are you arguing for wholesale deregulation of party financing? Well, we do recommend deregulating the political parties. We think that they've been constrained way too much. Given how much elections cost, given how much money is getting into the system anyway, we're realists. And we say if there's any way, if any group should be controlling the money, it's the political parties. They're highly transparent. We know where they're getting the money from, who they're giving to, so they're not dark money groups. They also have incentives to uh, put money into races to make them competitive uh, rather than hold people's feet to the fire for being pure. So they are willing to bet their money on races where there are some candidates who are more in the middle, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, the other thing, parties are aggregators of interest, and we're like – so. It's not like a narrow faction. Every party has, you know, different interest groups that support them. But the party has to represent all of those factions to some degree. 
And so we like the fact that they have to compromise and negotiate within the party. And then, of course, uh, across the, the party aisle sometimes to get legislation passed. So I'm sure you've gotten pushback from people who argue that the parties themselves have been engines for polarization. What do you usually say to them? It depends on who's got power within the party. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to argue is that the parties, people think they're monolithic entities and everyone. The parties are made up of, of very different factions. It's only two parties, major parties in the United States, okay? And in every state and, in, and nationally, it's made up of different factions. And we're saying when you change the rules of the game, in this case, the rules of money, you're giving power to one faction over the other. So what happened in the Republican Party, for instance, you took away power from uh, the business faction that used to give traditionally directly to the party and directly to candidates, and you gave it to uh, extreme partisans, ideologues, individual ideologues, who really, like the Koch brothers, who, uh, yeah, they're businessmen, but they're primarily in for ideological reasons. And now they have more power in the party to elect candidates they like because the parties are constrained, and they are not constrained because of Supreme Court decisions. You mentioned in the intro to your book some of the unintended consequences of the progressive and populist response uh, to, to campaign finance reform. Can you talk about how maybe some of the efforts um, to create a small donor democracy or institute public financing measures might actually weaken political parties or some of the other proposals you're talking about? So participation is a good thing. Uh, I think public financing has some possibilities, but we have to be cognizant that it might, again, when you change the rules of the game, you're putting power into different sets of players' hands. So our study shows that um, small donors are just as polarizing, in fact, in some ways maybe more so than, than large donors. Um, certainly, um, you know, on some of these, uh, you know, social issues. So, um, so we're saying be careful what you ask for here because then the candidates and the parties and interest groups have to really make their appeals very sharp in order to get that small donor money. They really have to rely heavily on that. So we're just saying, you know, be careful what you ask for. Public financing can be a as a nice feature in that it could make candidates and parties less reliant on private money, private interested money. But again, um, if if you're only giving access, if, if you're subsidizing ideologues, and that you know matching programs could just bring out more ideologues who want to give money, and then they triple or quadruple. Uh, the amounts they give to candidates, um, that could also exacerbate polarization. One thing I don't like about public financing schemes is they don't talk about giving money to parties. So if you're going to do public financing, think about giving it uh, through the parties a bit more. Right, right. So I'm also curious what you have to say about politicians' role in all this. You make the distinction between the responsive politician and the strategic politician. Can you talk about how these two types differ from one another and what the implication might be for reform. So we were talking about the responsive and strategic politician. You know, the strategic politician mobilizes, that was in the context of how they get money, um, how they mobilize donors uh, by taking certain positions. And some politicians move to the left or move to the right because they know that the they get money from ideologues. Um, whereas what we would like to see is politicians that are more responsive to um, to the electorate per se, so um, so yeah, that's that's basically it. We want to see a campaign finance system that creates 
more responsive politicians rather than purely being strategic. Now, when you think about it, you know, the politicians, the ones who are elected, create the campaign finance system. And so incumbents are afraid to pass legislation, reform that's going to hurt them. Um, so it's very difficult to get anything passed because they've won elections on this. If you are to pitch your research to some of the advocacy organizations that are working to address campaign finance reform, what, what would you tell them? I would say campaign finance reform is about a lot of trade-offs. Do you want to keep money out of politics versus transparency? Because you can't always have them, bo them both, okay? So the more you clamp down on money in, America, in the American system, the, less, the more it's going to squirt out into dark areas, okay? So that's one thing. Keep in mind trade-offs. The other thing I would remind them, keep in mind the institutional flow of money. Where is the money going to when you create these limits? And pick your poison. Which groups would you prefer to control the money and why? And as I said, my argument for me is clearly the parties, which are the most transparent, the most accountable, the most long-lived. They have a long history and they have a future, so people can hold them accountable. And they have incentives that I think are good for the political system. They want to win elections, so being responsive is important to them. Uh, you know, sometimes that will force them to move to the middle to make compromises. Um, so for all these reasons, I would say think about those things before you push through legislation that just tries to get rid of money or even passing public financing schemes that try to get politicians to spend less. So both Ray and Dan may have some disagreements about what deregulation of party financing should look like. But there's a nice underlying conviction in both their arguments that party organizations are important and can provide a counterweight to the influence of super PACs and dark money groups. Parties are accountable and encourage broad participation, things the post-Citizens United environment has undermined. And while we're not going to solve this campaign finance puzzle overnight, I think I now have a better sense of what the path looks like moving forward. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Dan Wiener and Ray LaRaja for enlightening conversations and my talented and funky brother, Swan Hendrickson, for producing the music you heard on today's show. I'm just getting this podcast started, so please tell your friends, rate this podcast on iTunes, and be sure to leave a review. 